Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where we tell you about strange things that happen in history. My name is Amelia Edwards and with me is my co-host Barnaby King. Is it Amelia Edwards or are you Bertie Wooster? <laughs> what ho? What ho? No, it wasn't Bertie Wooster. It's the main character out of... Um, Oh, God. What's the name of that? A Matter of Life and Death. Oh, yeah, yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. Um, after all, we know that his co-pilot said, what ho? <laughs> and we go, oh, that sounds like him. I feel like this is a reference that maybe two of our listeners will get. Woo! <laughs> uh, it's a great film, though. Everyone it is a good film. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Um, okay, so today... Uh, we're going to do a bit of history that feels like it should be a lot darker than it is. Okay. And my God, I've tried to work out what the downsides are to this, and I have not. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Because sometimes we start off on a topic and it gets really dark. Yeah. Like, I thought a woman giving birth to rabbits would be hilarious. I know, right? it wasn't. Or the, um, the molasses flood. Yeah. Yeah. No, this one goes the other way around. Okay. So have no fear. Right. All right. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a US fighter pilot. So you are... Howdy, the- ma'am. <laughs> You're the best of the best. You're an ace pilot. Uh, wait, wait, what era are we talking? World War Two. Ah, Before okay. D-Day. Right, 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 right. Okay, so uh, I'm off now, Nancy... No, I was about to say Nancy Drew. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I- I'm off now, Anne-Marie. I'm off up in my fighter plane, and I'm going to take it to them Japs. Well, it's the Germans, but yes, yes, absolutely. They're all Japs to me, Anne-Marie. Sure. Okay. So are you. <laughs> um... Sorry, but I'm I'm English. We're stationed in English England at the moment. I don't know why you think my name's Anne Marie. That's not a very English name. <laughs> Anyways, so unfortunately, despite all your high hopes, you've had to bail out of your plane over German occupied France. Bye bye, Anne Marie. And you have been captured. Ah oh, shit, Anne Marie. Absolutely. Why didn't you help me in this situation? Um be- because you turned out to be a cad. Oh no. I know. Oh, I didn't think I was a cad. Uh, you you kept calling me Anne-Marie, and, and really, my name is Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. You're from Wuthering Heights now. <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm just doing the correct period accent, darling. Oh, I see. Yes. All right. So <laughs> that, 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 that correct pronunciation thing where it's like... Did tra- anyone actually talk like that? Yeah. Like when it's like trait is... is it, there's a thing that's like trait. You're not meant to pronounce the final T. Really? Yeah, I think this was in like a BBC pronunciation guide. Oh wow! Like tray. Oh, <laughs> what what a weird tray. I know, anyway, right? Um, so you get taken to basically a sort of cooling off place before you get taken to your POW camp. I mean, I don't like the heat, so a cooling off place sounds great. Yeah. Well, this one is Auschwitzdale West. Okay. Um. And while you're there, you basically get put in a really small cell. Oh. Um, all of your stuff gets taken off you, including this... your little mini compasses that they used to give you to make sure you could uh, work your way around the countryside, and your silk maps they've gone oh. to, and all of your cash in various denominations. This is not a nice cooling off place. It's not. I was hoping it would be like a little spa. No, a little sorry. little cryo room. Sorry. Oh. Um, I want to, you to think for a moment. You have been captured by the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to be great. No, fair enough. And there were two ways that American pilots used to imagine they'd be treated by the Germans. 
Um, the first one is they thought they'd be tortured. Well, I mean, yeah, that would be my first thought. The second one, which is kind of more funny, is that for some reason there was this idea that they'd be seduced into giving up their secrets with wine, women and song. Right. Okay, did they think that or did they hope that? I think they really hoped that. Um, So as we shall see, there were actually a few pilots who were looking forward to it. And yeah, no, that doesn't happen either. (laughs) Wow. Talk about wishful thinking. Yeah. Wine, women and song. (laughs) Absolutely. You get captured by by the Nazis and first thing is, okay, bring on the women. (laughs) (laughs) Bring on the Pinot Noir. (laughs) I like uh, was ist das? <laughs> was ist das? Uh, we drink beer here. <laughs> um, okay, so you understand that your interrogator is going to be one of the most successful in the Luftwaffe, if not in the whole of Germany. I will bring you the white Zinfandel. <laughs> you will not be able to withstand it. You will wonder why is it pink? <laughs> um, your interrogator is a man called Hans Schaff. Okay, that's a strong German name. Yes, and he has ways of making you talk. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, Okay, so one of the things about being an American pilot is when you head off, you're told you can only give three pieces of information if you're captured. Otherwise, they're going to um, court-martial you when you get back. Was it name, rank, and serial number or something? Yes. Yeah. It was exactly that. Yeah. So from what I understand... um, that changed pretty abruptly in terms of like the way that the American military worked. Um, and it was kind of assumed that as long as you didn't basically give information that led to other people dying, mm. they were basically like, just do what you have to to survive. That seems really sensible. Mm. Um, and actually, the Nazis kind of would prefer if the Americans had given that information to the Americans yeah. to start off with, um, because. Well, well, we shall see. We shall yeah. see. I mean, that, so so that that is very. Um, there's a there's a lot of like Hollywood stuff, which is like the the soldier just giving name, rank, and serial. And yeah. In, in fact, I think Monty Python do a parody of that whole thing. Really, because it is apparently what a lot of yeah. officers did, specifically low ranking officers. Like apparently, high ranking officers kind of had more political savvy to start off with and more like confidence so they were like okay this is the amount of stuff i can tell you this is what i can't tell you yeah um but people who were low down were just like i can only tell you my name rank and serial number and (laughs) they were being interrogated by you know straight up nazis probably yeah okay i've got to say you said this wasn't going to be dark um we're we're in nazi interrogation zones so right so we've got this we've got this hans Hans schaff And I've been told that I can only say these three things. Yes. Okay, so you walk into Hans Schaaf's room Mm -hmm. and he sits you down and is like, hello, I'm Hans Schaaf. It's really nice to meet you. Oh, he's he's a very upbeat Nazi. He's a hell of an upbeat guy. Um, (laughs) Hello, would you like some coffee? Well, basically. Oh, really? um, (laughs) He makes it really clear. He's like, okay, so here's the deal. The problem is that we're connected with the Gestapo. They're right next to us. Mm -hmm. And 
I've got this paper. I've got 28 details that I have to fill out before you can be sent to the POW camp. Right. And at the moment, here you are in front of me and I've got no proof that you are who you say you are. Yeah. And it would make a lot of sense for you to tell me that you're a soldier. Yeah. Because that way you get to go to the POW camp instead Mm. of being shot as a spy. Right. Yeah. So if I don't get all of these bits of information then it will be my duty to hand you over to the Gestapo, which I don't want to do. No one wants to do that. Yeah. But, you know, my hands are tied. (laughs) No one wants to get the Gestapo involved. Everyone thinks they're weird. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) Hans Schaaf really actually genuinely does not want to get the Gestapo involved. But, you know, he does this whole, like, chill thing. He's like, hey, you know, we just... I've got all these boxes I've got to fill out. Yeah. Like, he's literally like, there are all these squares, look. Like, this is the paper I've got. This is the form I've got to do. Yeah. And I can't let you go to the POW camp <laughs> unless we got this done. F***ing paperwork. God, am I right? This bureaucracy, it's just awful. Yeah. Like, I don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. God, it's just... Oh, but you know how those up, the upper ranks love their paperwork, am I right? Eh, eh, eh. If you wouldn't mind just occasionally screaming just mm-hmm. for the Gestapo <laughs> next door, just so that they think I'm doing more of this. But... Oh, no. Oh, okay. No screaming. Oh. Um, he doesn't believe in torture at all. Oh, nice. That's not going to happen. Oh, right. Um, because the Luftwaffe specifically say, like, they've got a code of conduct. Right. And that doesn't involve torture. Oh, interesting. Now, apparently there were, like, some of the American officers did believe that torture had happened or was happening and, like, gave up information because they didn't want to get tortured. According to Hans Schaaf, who wrote a book on the subject years, like, in the 1970s. Oh, my God. um, So Beata Glasfeld didn't get to him. No, and I don't think she would have wanted to. Oh, okay. Um, But he wrote this book, um... Uh, about being an interrogator. Yeah. And he said that basically the Russians used to have communal baths while they were staying with them. And they used to like scream and shout at each other a lot. And the Americans heard the Uh, screaming coming down the corridor and were like, Jesus Christ. Like, we don't want that happening to us. (laughs) We don't want to have baths with the Russians. No one wants that. (laughs) Better talk, lads. <laughs> like, apparently at least one pilot genuinely Aww. did was like, I, I don't want to get tortured like that. And yeah. they were like, sorry, what are you talking about? What yeah. was that? Okay, while you're having your interrogation, so mm-hmm. you literally just sat down in front of this guy. He's like, hey, I've got to fill out these boxes. Um, a parcel arrives for him. And it's from his wife. <laughs> and it's got cake in it. I was literally going to make a joke about it being cake. Uh, specifically, it's apparently uh, Boston boiled bread. Right. Which is like, it's a very molasses heavy cake, weirdly, because it's yeah. from Boston, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's got like molasses and vanilla and um, like raisins in it. Yeah. And you boil it in a can. So it's more like a sort of pudding. Uh, yeah. It sounds a bit like bread pudding. Yeah. And um, and obviously, you know, he's hungry. You're hungry. So yeah. he, he shares some cake with you. And like, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, you've just... Like, I appreciate you can only tell me your name and your serial number and your rank, but that's pointless here. There's no point. And, you know, we already know everything, so don't worry about it. And by the end of this interrogation, like, you have told him nothing. Yeah. But you you kind of open up to some of his, like, silly little jokes and things like that, because he makes stupid jokes and he's just like a chill guy. God, that this has got to be a surreal experience because, mm-hmm. you know... Nazis, like, they're not known for, you know, treating people nicely, like, treating anyone nicely, even their own people. So it's like, 
Wow, okay. Yeah, right, so I, I've just had like an afternoon with some cake and a nice yeah, chat. You've had some afternoon with some cake and a nice chat. And that's because you met Hans Scharf, mm. who by all accounts seems to have been a really decent guy. I'm going to tell you a little bit about his life story before he became um, an, inter- an interrogator for Nazi Germany. Yeah. Because it is really interesting and it also mirrors a lot of the stories of the interrogators for the Luftwaffe in particular. Right. Okay, so um, he was born in 1907 in East Prussia, uh, which is now actually, like, in a part of East Prussia that's now actually in Poland. So Ah. technically when you look him up, it says he's Polish. Oh, right. But I think he would have considered himself German. Yeah. Um, And he, like... His mother was the daughter of the founders of one of the largest textile mills in Germany. Oh, wow. Okay. So he grew up pretty wealthy, but there was this assumption that he would work in textiles. Yeah. So he had to work, I think, in the mill for a couple of years during his teen years so that he could get used to textile work. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just imagining now him in, like, military uniform in, like, in this uh, POW camp. And it's just like, freeze. You're probably wondering how I got here, (laughs) I started off working in a textile factory and now I'm an interrogator for the Luftwaffe. (laughs) I mean, okay. (laughs) So the thing is that he had an older brother who was going to take over the business. Yeah. So his family were like, okay, I think you should be good at merchandising and exporting. So Mm. he got trained specifically to work for Adler Automobiles, which were produced in Frankfurt. Right. Um, and he worked in the Adlerwerk Foreign Office in Johannesburg in South Africa. Oh, wow. Okay. So basically he moves away from Germany. Yeah. He goes to Johannesburg. He spends 10 years in South Africa. Bloody hell. Uh, during which time he met and married a South African British woman who was called Margaret Stokes. Okay. And she was the daughter of a pilot. Right. A British pilot. Okay. <laughs> who had died in World War One after being shot down by the Red Baron. This is surreal. Right? This, I get, I'm... I'm genuinely having trouble believing this. Like, I trust you. I trust in your research. But it's like, this is one of those things that is so mad, it can only be true. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. Like, this is mad, right? This is 100% mad. Yeah. That this guy, like, but if you you take it back to basics, the idea of a man traveling from Germany, getting set up in Johannesburg... That seems reasonable. The idea that it's between wartime, so you meet mm. a woman who's British in South Africa, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I think it's just like the, the context around everything yeah. that we know now. Absolutely. It just makes it mad. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it really does. Yeah. But the thing is that this seems to have been the case for a lot of interrogators because they needed to be able to speak English really well so they'd all been living in these like mad places so they'd all married British women in Johannesburg (laughs) okay his partner was known as wild Canadian Bill right because he had gone to live in Canada for years Uh... and years in like in the back of beyond and his specialist skills that he liked to talk about were he knew how to bake sourdough Right. He knew how to start a fire in the rain. Right. Which is a good skill. It is a good skill. And he also knew how to fell a large tree. Amazing. But this was Wild Bill, whose name was really Otto. 
Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. I have to keep reminding myself that these are like Nazi interrogators yeah, because at yeah. the moment it sounds like they're some sort of adorable sitcom characters or something. I mean, yeah. Like, okay, let's talk about the whole Nazism thing for a moment. Yeah. I, I feel like that is a bit of an elephant in the room because typically Nazis, not good guys. No. We don't want to be on their side at all. No. Um, okay, so, as I said... Hans Schaff writes this book, right, in the 1970s. Mm. And the reason why he writes it is because, like, the actual overall author of the book, which mm. is called The Interrogator, had was a military historian, and he had been interviewing all of these American Air Force men. Right. And they all mentioned their inter- interrogator, who was a jolly nice chap. Ah, and right. this guy was Hans Schaff. Yeah. Um, because he interviewed, like, he interrogated so many... American pilots. Yeah. And the thing was that they tended to like go and meet each other again, like in the <laughs> 70s and 80s and stuff. Like Hans Schaff would go meet people and they'd be like, yeah. How much did you learn from us? And because he's like a stand up guy, he would be like, Oh, not very much. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> it was awful. He fed me so much bread pudding, I was ready to <laughs> tell him anything. Um, yeah. Okay. So the thing is that. When we look at Schaff, his whole thing is he was in South Africa for 10 years. Yeah. Um, like, before the 1940s. Mm. So, as far as... I don't know if there was anything going on in South Africa, really, no, at that point. I, I was just thinking, like, my immediate reaction when you say, like, someone's living in Johannesburg in South Africa is to be like, ooh. Um, but I don't know much of it, sort of pre-apartheid really yeah, and this is pre-apartheid yeah. i mean it's still probably because it is colonial yeah but at the same time i don't know like he's like as far as i can tell he seems to have been kind of cool about native african peoples mm. like there's a story in the book where he sees some guys who are native african peoples yeah. who have like just got caught up in the interrogation circuit and he like greets them in their own languages and stuff like that and it's like oh, how wow. are you doing guys <laughs> um, and they're like how oh doing? amazing i've got all of this bread pudding um so and also the reason why he went back to germany for mm-hmm. world war Two is that he wanted to go back and visit his family for a holiday right and then the war broke oh, out no <laughs> Oh, what timing. Yeah, so he was stuck there. Yeah. And then he got drafted. <laughs> um, and originally he was going to get deployed to the Russian front. Yeah. But then his wife, the English woman, yeah. actually go, like talks her way into the office of a German general in Berlin yeah. and goes, you would be an idiot to send my husband to the front line in Russia. He speaks fluent English. Right, yeah. He would be a great interrogator. Yeah. Or an interpreter. Like, send him where he can interpret things. And it works. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, really. But yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, I guess it is a little mad, but, you know, it is a skill mm-hmm. and it is useful in wartime. So, yeah, yeah, makes sense. I mean, as far as I can tell... Hans Schaft doesn't seem to be an actual Nazi. Mm. He's working for the Nazis. Right. And and this is a bit more of a stretch on my part, but it's just an impression I've got. Mm. I, as far as I can tell, a lot of the Luftwaffe seem to have been like already in the Luftwaffe during World War One. Like a lot of the generals right. are World War One generals. Yeah. So I mean, they might have been Nazis. 
Mm. But also, they might just have been career pilots who yeah. get to keep their job because it's a skilled job. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't really thought about it like that. But there, there probably were a lot of people because obviously, like we think of like Nazi Germany as pretty like totalitarian or controlling. Everyone is a mm-hmm. Nazi, but there were probably lots of people who you know just kept their jobs. Yeah, like I think particularly in like the military and the air force and the navy who probably didn't go like didn't agree with it but you know it's their job i i really think that's what's going on here and i kind of assume like i guess the thing is when you sit back and you look at the whole of nazi germany you're like anyone who's getting involved in this thing must therefore be a a part of it especially if you're in something as important as you know the luftwaffe yeah but at the same time People are just people. Mm. I, I mean, I feel like that's a bit of a get out of jail free card, but I do feel like people are just people and they want to keep doing the things they're doing. Yeah. If you're a pilot and you like fighting wars, then presumably you'll want to fight wars more or less regardless of the cause, unless you're polit- particularly political. And I guess it is quite possible if he's like, if he's stationed in this camp and like dealing with just prisoners of war, he may not even be really involved in some of the worst excesses of Nazism. Yeah. Like, obviously that's me kind of putting that interpretation on. Um, and I know there were lots of people who made excuses pretending that they didn't know about things like the Holocaust. But mm. I, I guess it is a distinct possibility that someone whose job is just to talk to these American fighter pilots... Yeah, I could see them not mm. knowing. I mean... Like, Hans says in his book that he wanted to do the best for his country. Yeah. But at the same time, he doesn't really say anything particularly anti-Jewish. Yeah. Um, there's a point where he interviewed a Jewish-American pilot, and he mm. doesn't even mention anything oh, wow. beyond that. Um I mean, he does say some like slightly off-color things about black people, but it's the sort of slightly off-color thing about black people that one might say in the seventies. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, I get what you mean. It's not hatred, but it's not great. No, it, it's just uh, racism of the era. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, so I feel like he's not a Nazi, and. It seems like later on the Americans decide he's not a Nazi as well. Mm. So we'll have a look at that later okay. on. Um, but basically, so you're getting interrogated effectively just by this guy. Yeah. Um, he doesn't even like he doesn't even have a high rank either. He's I think he's like a lieutenant colonel or something. Like he's pretty low down, and he's right. just like chill and chatting with you and giving you cake. Hmm. Um, I'll tell you some other of his interrogation methods. Okay. They're all pretty good. Yeah. Um, so he used to take people for walks in the woods. <laughs> um, because there was like a little coffee shop. Oh, like, wow. Along the path from where they were. <laughs> so they'd go and get some like nice coffee instead of like the ersatz crap that they were eating back yeah. in the barracks and things. <laughs> this idea that you're like taken out by this German officer into the woods and it's like, right, this is where I get executed. And it's like, is this lovely little coffee shop here? Yeah. I thought if we could just sit down, have a little drink. Like apparently he used to do this particularly because there was this ant's nest on the route. Right. And he used to drop his handkerchief on the ant's nest so you could so everyone could watch the ants like attacking the handkerchief. Oh wow. And then he'd use that to lead into a 
discussion of politics <laughs> because you could stand with these American officers and be like, I wonder if they're like communists or yeah. is this a totalitarian regime? What do you think? <laughs> and apparently the American officers used to like get really free and easy when you started talking politics in that yeah. way, especially because they're kind of like, they're not making it a personal thing. It's about mm. how would you apply this to ants? Yeah, fair enough. So that used to apparently really loosen people up because <laughs> talking about politics and nature is like something everyone can do. Yeah, fair. Um, he, and then you go have a nice coffee. <laughs> yeah, you go have a nice coffee. Um, apparently, there was also a hospital nearby. And yeah. if if pilots mentioned that they knew somebody who was in that hospital because yeah. they'd been injured in and like uh, taken captive... Yeah. Um, he would like go for a walk to the hospital and take you with him and you could go visit your <laughs> friends and meanwhile he'd like chat with some of the other people that he'd already talked to before and play <laughs> cards with them and stuff Jeff, Jeff, I've been captured are you alright? I'm alright how has it been? It's been weird <laughs> <laughs> well this is the thing in the book he talks a lot about how like confused people were yeah. by this tactic Um and that worked for both of them. Like, he really just wanted mm. to find out things, but he wasn't going to do anything to make <laughs> that happen. So he was just going like, to be real chill about it. Um, wow. Everyone, and he used to take people to the cinema as well. <laughs> um, which was apparently... I will show you German art house films until you crack. No, no, no. Because they'd go to the cinema and they'd watch like, the news broadcasts being ah. like, oh, this is how successful America just was in this latest thing. And then they'd get really heartened by it because he wanted them to have high morale. Right. And then they'd be more likely to talk. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. If you feel like, you know, your side is doing really well, you probably don't feel so bad about giving away information because you feel like it's less important. Yeah. And like... With some, like, particular pilots, because there were pilots he was really keen to meet. Like, he was mm. really excited about it because they were, like, the aces. They had all of these medals and, like, they were so cool. <laughs> I have all these stickers of you in my collection. Basically. <laughs> um, he used to meet the... He used to invite them so they could meet a load of famous German pilots and, like, yeah. discuss the different dogfights they'd had together. <laughs> and in one case, he actually invited a pilot to fly one of the German planes. Oh, wow. Um, like supervised by a German yeah, pilot yeah, yeah. immediately behind him. But they were like, hey, you won't fly away, will you? And he was like, no, of course I won't. <laughs> I'm having a great time. I'm not going anywhere. Well, of course he wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Because it's, there's this whole spirit of chivalry. Uh, and like, yeah, it's yeah. real old fashioned. But apparently, like pilots in World War II just had this whole chivalric attitude towards stuff. They were like, no, you wouldn't run away if you're captured. Like, if you're running away from people you've given your word to. Yeah. You know, like, they've been jolly good chaps. Why, why are they, like, knights of the era? I don't know, but they really are, and it's so interesting. Like, they've even kind of got a steed. Basically, yeah. <laughs> and then they used to give them names. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. Okay, now, the most successful... The thing that made him so successful wasn't just that he was being really nice to people. Mm -hmm. um, it was that he had this massive, massive team behind him okay. whose job it was to gather intelligence before he even spoke to a pilot the first right. time. yeah. So by the time he met a pilot, he would know what their... Like, details about their rank, where they were from. Sometimes mm. he knew people's mother's maiden names. Oh, my God. Um, he would know what building they'd been stationed in. 
Um, That's a bit worrying, really. I mean, yeah, good but to but but there's like loads of things he talks about in um, in the book, The Interrogator. Yeah, he talks about how they knew these things. So, mm. for instance, uh, the Americans and the British knew that. If, a, if an American pilot got shot down, mm-hmm. they would be able to get help from the local like resistance movement. Right, yeah. And the local resistance movement could make them their papers, their ID papers. Right. But for some reason, they couldn't make them the, the uh, passport photos that they need for the ID papers. Mm. So the Americans used to have specific passport photos made up for them before they got shot like before they went out in case they got shot down right so they had this set of like five passport photos yeah and the thing was that um they often hadn't brought a load of like nondescript clothes with them from Mm. america so the local photographer who was responsible for taking these photographs would have like a set outfit that they'd give them, which meant right. that they could be disguised as a French peasant, say. That's amazing. Um, and the thing was that they then, because they've always got the same clothes and the same background, if they're in a specific base, mm. then the Germans could look at these photos and identify which base you had come from in the UK. Right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. That's mad. And the thing is that there are all of these like experts at this base at this base that um, Hans Scharf worked out of, who knew like a really specific thing. So there was mm. one guy who like knew which bases were which and what they were like. Yeah. And there was like a lady who knew all about exactly where everyone had been shot down that day. Yeah. And there were women making up a map every day. Um, of where any action had taken place. Mm. So you could go to that room and be like, I want to know what happened on this day because that must have been when this guy got shot down. Right, So yeah. then they'd scroll back through their maps and then have a map <laughs> which would show you exactly where everything happened. So then you'd be able to work out, like, where was this guy shot down? What type of plane did he have? Because this plane got shot down on that yeah. day. And they had people listening over the radio who could identify voices. So they'd be able to work out what his last words were before yeah. he got shot down. And then they'd know what the name of his plane was and what his code was. Why is this all just playing into that stereotype of, like, uh, German efficiency? Uh, yes, uh, meticulous efficiency. I mean, the best thing is Hanshaft talks about that too. Oh, and he's wow. Like, it really does. It, it shows how efficient we were. Amazing. And he says, in terms of interrogation, we were allowed a little bit more flexibility. Yeah. Um, but obviously we didn't have the same flexibility as, say, the Americans did on, mm. on this kind of thing. But yeah, so... Like some of the things they knew was ab- was absolutely mad because he'd be able to say things like, "Oh, you were stationed at so and so place. That must have been so annoying because I know the fireplace there is like really small <laughs> compared to this other location you could have been at." And and these guys are just sitting there like, "Okay, well you know everything, <laughs> yeah. so there's actually nothing I can tell you." You're he's he always gives off this impression that he's just checking those details are correct. Yeah. Um. And the thing is that every once in a while, he'd do this like annoying little thing and be like, oh, like, obviously, this is why you were doing this. Hmm. And people would find themselves correcting him, (laughs) being like, no, 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 you've got it wrong. This is it. (laughs) And that's the way he got information out of people. That's amazing. Which is so clever because he would ask people questions. Yeah. But he didn't need the answers to those. Yeah. That's fantastic. So there's an example that he gives in the book. Um... 
He wanted to find out why the Americans sometimes used white tracer bullets when they were firing mm. instead of red ones. Because they right. mostly use red ones. Yeah. And he goes to this guy while he's on his little walk through the forest. He says, It's too bad America didn't have more experience in working off English bases since it sometimes overloads your industry back home. Such as they now have run out of the chemicals they use to make red tracer bullets. Those white ones you fellows are using in your dogfights must be rather hard to follow with your eyes. <laughs> so you have to shoot a whole string of them. 10, 20, even 50 of them. And then this guy that he's been talking to, like, who knows that he knows yeah. all these things, is like, goes, ha, you're nuts, Hans. They haven't run out of much of anything back home. <laughs> White tracers are just our way of warning ourselves. When ten of them, or any big batch of them, shows up, you know you'd better start heading for home pronto because you've just shot out your last ammo. The guns are empty. Wow. So someone... And the thing is that because because Hans is, like, a really nice guy, he yeah. doesn't name this pilot. Yeah. Because he feels like that would be really embarrassing for uh, them. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, because that is that when you think about it, that is some pretty vital information. That's really important. Like that's when you, like they know that a plane is basically defenseless. Then. Yeah. Um, but later, after he so he obviously disseminated this information. Yeah. All the German pilots knew that when they started shooting white tracers, that means that they're out of bullets. Yeah. Um, later, he discovered that this might actually have saved some American lives. Oh really? Yes, um, because. One of the German pilots mentioned that he had seen the white tracer bullets. Oh, and did he think it's like not worth shooting them down or something? Well, he felt like it would be a a wrong thing to do. <laughs> oh my god, go go back to the chivalry. Yeah, thing. he's like, no, <laughs> I absolutely am not going to shoot this man down. Like, I won't shoot him down. He's not armed. Exactly. It wouldn't be sporting. Exactly. <laughs> But genuinely, apparently he did that, like, he, he he flew up to him, like, gave him a salute and was like, off you go then. Wow, what a surreal moment for that other pilot, though. Yeah, being like, why is... Well, it's like, like, you're panicking, you're like, you're out of ammo, yeah. the other plane's still there. Yep. And then he just comes over, gives you a little nod and flies off. Yeah. It's like, what's going on? Yep. Am I, am I going to explode or something? I mean... It's wild. Yeah. It's absolutely mad. Okay, so basically, this is this is what he does. And he talks about it a yeah. lot in the book. And I thoroughly recommend it to anyone who's really interested because it's a bit mad. I mean, I'm interested. I might well get it. Oh, you should borrow <laughs> it from me because I've got it on my Kindle. And it's oh, fair enough. a little expensive. Ah. Uh, but I felt it was worthwhile. Yeah. Um, I'm going to scoot forward mm-hmm. to what happens to him after World War II. Okay. So... This is a thing that I couldn't get my head around. Right. But in 1948, so three years after the war, he was invited to the US. Okay. Because they wanted him to testify in the treason trial of a man called Lieutenant Martin J. Monty. Right. Okay, so Lieutenant Martin J. Monty had stolen a plane... From the US. Oh, okay. Or like from the US Army. I think he was actually stationed in Jordan or somewhere. Yeah. He had flown it to Milan. Right. And then he'd immediately surrendered it and himself to the Nazis. Oh my God. And told them he wanted to defect. Whoa, damn. All right. And after that, he'd tried to work on propaganda, but it turned out he wasn't that good. (laughs) (laughs) And, And a bunch of other stuff. But basically, he was... Eventually, he was summoned back to America, and they were like, 
what the hell, man? Yeah, I mean, I would be. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the thing that gets me about this is like the fact that the Americans apparently felt that the testimony of the German interrogator mm. who interrogated Monty was like worthwhile enough yeah. to call him to a trial. <laughs> it's like, we all know Hans, he's trustworthy, bring him along. <laughs> Literally, yes, that seems to have been the case. Yeah. Because while he was over there, the Pentagon were like, oh, hold on a second. Like, while you're here. <laughs> while you're here. We've got some bread pudding for you. <laughs> no, they were like, while you're here, could you tell us how you um, how you interrogated all these people? And he was yeah. like, yeah, sure. <laughs> sure, you can read all about it in my upcoming book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's going to be 30 years, no, 20 I know, years. I but I still it. think it's fun. Yeah, but like, okay, so the thing is the Pentagon has, as far as I can tell, ever since used his interrogation techniques because they were so really? useful. Yes. I'm, I, I mean, not in certain places. I was going to say, like... But, but apparently... I don't think waterboarding was part of his No, it really uh, arsenal, wasn't, no. it? it was more like cheeseboarding. The good, the good, the good people of the Pentagon right, I see. have apparently used his techniques ever since. Like they got mm. him to talk to them about it, and while he was there, he was like, "Oh, you know what? I quite like America. <laughs> I think I'm going to stay." Okay, this is amazing, and also just to sort of, I I I know you're sort of moving on to another oh, sure, thing, sure, but but I just think it's it it, may, it does make a lot of sense because I, I think it's it's been well written about that torture is notoriously unreliable as a way to like extract information. Yeah. So probably his method is much more reliable to if you're actually getting information and you're not just like trying to like you know shock and or terrify people yeah i think i think it seems to really work especially because the whole thing is like making people feel self-confident enough yeah. that they let things slip yeah often because they let things slip because they want to show you as a sort of friendly character that mm. they are better than you they understand something more than you right yeah which i think that would probably work on me uh, like, yeah I mean, it's always nice when you get to, like, explain something to someone. Yeah, everyone loves doing that. Yeah. And if you if you get to go, oh, actually, this. Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, that's mad. I okay, so, so, he's, so he decides that, you know, America's pretty chill. He's going to settle down. Yeah, he's like, you know what? I'm going to settle down. And obviously he needs a new job. Yeah. So um, he thinks, you know... It's time for a little bit of a change, but I want to go back to my old textile ways. <laughs> okay. In a, in a, in a, like to an extent. Yeah. Um, he decides he's going to make mosaics. Oh, right. Okay. So he settles down in America and he starts to make mosaic art and furniture products designed with mosaics to sell within the New York City area. Right. And he's very successful with this. Ah. So he expands his business to locations around the US. Right. Uh, including mostly like Los Angeles. Um, he, he calls his business Hans Scharf Designs. And the thing is that uh, one of the one of the more famous one of his mosaics mm -hmm. is one that you can look up and it will mention that it was made by Hans Schaff, but it won't mention that he was an interrogator. Right, yeah. Uh, because, okay, 
1971, he invited his daughter-in-law, Monica Shaft, to study under him uh, in right. his expanding business. And they created five 15-foot wall mosaics telling the story of Cinderella in the what? Cinderella Castle <laughs> at Walt Disney World in Florida. Oh, my God. That's mad. What yeah? the hell? A hundred percent. Apparently they've done a bunch of different mosaics um in and around Florida, like for the um like for the floor of the Florida courthouse or something. Yeah. And also, yeah, they've created mosaics telling the story of Cinderella in the Cinderella Castle. And they're sort of Apparently, they're those sorts of things they blend into the background, so you don't even really notice them. Yeah. But I've looked at them, and they're really pretty. <laughs> I guess it's kind of on brand, because, you know, Walt Disney, bit of a Nazi. <laughs> I know, but, but is Sharp even a Nazi, though? I mean, Hard no. But yeah, yeah, that's... Wow. Okay, so, fair enough. He's embraced a new life. So, yeah, this was that time when a German interrogator created... The Cinderella mosaics oh, in Disney World. Very good. I, I I really hope that people don't think that, you know, making light about Nazism in this episode, because obviously it is awful, but... I mean, this th- is the thing. I kept trying to find things yeah. that said, you know, he's a Nazi, things yeah. are dreadful, he's got anti-Semitic views, but it really just doesn't yeah. seem like he does. And I really would have said if I felt that Absolutely. there was anything yeah. at all. Yeah. I just wanted to give that little disclaimer in case it seemed like it, because otherwise it just sounds like this guy was really nice and just kind of good at his job in a way that didn't hurt people. I mean, that's that's really the story yeah. that I've been telling, to yeah. be honest. Fair enough. Thank you for listening to That Time When... You can follow us on Twitter at that time when four, and if you have any suggestions for episodes, you can email them to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song Anachronous, as well as any other music that Barnaby has used in the podcast. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and have political discussions about ants. Bye!